0: Judy Blume is basically the biggest deal ever in the SSR universe. We've covered many of her books, we love her, and even when her books don't age so well, we appreciate her efforts to constantly be a progressive voice in children's literature. Episode 192 is a Judy Blume episode, and this one is extra special because we're chatting about our queen's most autobiographical novel, starring Sally J. Friedman as herself. This book was published in 1977 and explores the experiences of a young Jewish girl named Sally in the aftermath of World War II. After her brother's near-fatal illness, Sally, her mother, and her grandmother moved to Florida, and our heroine's transition is an interesting one, to say the least. Sally J. Friedman has some serious main character energy and imagines herself as the leading lady of every story and scenario. I dig that about her, but it does mean she can get carried away sometimes and find herself in weird scenarios. We talk about a lot of her antics on today's episode. On episode 192, we discuss the way starring Sally J. Friedman as herself contributes to our overall understanding of the Holocaust and the Jewish experience, marvel at Judy Bloom's ability to capture tragedy and hilarity at the same time, consider how our expectations of children have changed over the years, and lament the way we were socialized to understand teasing as a form of flirting or flattery. I also share the one language choice in this book that I hated and as usual, pretend to be on a first name basis with Judy Bloom. There's a lot to dig into on this episode and I am thankful to you for spending time with it and me and my guest. My guest today is Hannah Khan. Henna is the Pakistani American award-winning author of many books for young readers. Including Amina's song, Amina's voice, and more to the story. Last month, she kicked off a new middle grade series called Zara's Rules with Zara's Rules for Record Breaking Fun. Learn more about Henna and her work at henacon.com and follow her on social media at henaconbooks. Thanks so much to Henna for taking the time to chat with me about all things Judy Bloom. Learn about all things SSR, also my Golden Retriever Irving, and other fun things by checking out the podcast on social media. Find me at SSRPod on Instagram and Twitter, and by searching the SSR Podcast or the SSR Podcast community on Facebook. After an amazing full year of the free SSR Book Club, we are going to be switching things up with the format in the next few months. A lot of those changes are going to be happening on Facebook, so be sure to join if you haven't already. If you do consider yourself a joiner, you should also join the SSR community on Patreon. As an independent podcaster who manages every aspect of the show on my own, I am so grateful for this platform which gives SSR fans the opportunity to support the show for 1, 5 or 10 dollars a month in exchange for exclusive rewards. There are different rewards at every tier of support. Visit www.patreon.com/ssrpodcast or go to www.ssrpodcast.com and click support at the top of the page to learn more about how to get in on our Discord channel monthly newsletters, reading recap videos, SSR merch, and more. Plus, we are kicking off a new month of the Shit We Read book club this week, and we would love to have you along for the ride. Our May pick is Black Cake. As always, I would love to point all the audiobook lovers in the audience in the direction of Libro FM, which is my audiobook platform of choice. It's a great alternative to Audible because it allows you to support independent bookstores instead of a giant corporation, And since we just passed Independent Bookstore Day last weekend, there has never been a better time to make the switch. The audiobooks you get will sound and cost the same as the ones you buy from the big guys. SSR listeners can get a discount on their first audiobook purchase from Libro.fm. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and use code SSR podcast when prompted on the site to get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. Now let's go to the show. freelance writer lifelong bookworm and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles so find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine we're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the ssr podcast
1: hi Hannah. welcome to ssr hi thank you so much for having me this is so fun I'm so
0: excited that you're here. I didn't tell you this before we started recording, but I haven't recorded an episode in a few weeks, and so I feel like I have all of this pent-up recording energy, and I think we're just going to have a lot of fun today.
1: Yay, I hope so. I'm sure we will, actually.
0: So, today we are talking about a Judy Bloom book. And Hannah, you might not know this, but Judy Bloom is like kind of one of our queens here on SSR. Every time a Judy Bloom book comes up, everybody freaks out. I am one of the people that freaks out. Um, we love Judy. I have rediscovered a love for Judy Bloom in the four years that I have been doing this podcast. And today, the book is starring Sally J. Friedman as herself. And I have had a copy of this book. For a few years, I think somebody had wanted to do it on the podcast, and then last minute they changed their mind, and I was so bummed because I couldn't wait to read it. And then when you agreed to read it with me, I was so excited. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about any background you have with this book specifically, or with Judy Bloom more generally, and why you decided to choose this book for us to talk about.
1: Yeah, well, I I loved Judy Bloom as a kid growing up. I read. All the usual favorites. Are you there, God? Is me, Margaret. And the Superfudge books. Um, Sheila the Great. That was Judy Bloom, right? Yeah. And this was one that I hadn't read. So when I saw it, I was like, oh. I, and I realized that there are several Judy Bloom books that I haven't read. And now, after having read this one, I want to go back and read all the rest and reread everything else I already read as a kid. And yeah, I was just excited to, to dive into somebody who I you know admire and think is is a legend as well.
0: Is there a Judy Bloom book from your childhood that you remember as a particular favorite?
1: probably tales from fourth grade nothing. Yeah. I just remember especially having a younger brother and then two by the time, you know, I was a little bit older, I just connected so much with the whole idea of this this brother and I remember wanting to dump cereal on my little brother's head and, and suggesting that to my parents as a discipline. So, I mean, there's just so many so much in those books that for sure. I really too. Yeah.
0: I find that people tend to sort of be more fanatical about the Fudge universe or about her sort of like tween girl universe.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And I definitely was more of... I was in the category of the latter. Like I I don't think I was that into the fudge books because I didn't have any brothers. And so I read them because everybody else is reading them. But I think I like didn't get a lot of it. So it's been fun to come back to some of those for the podcast. But I just ate up all of her stories of young girls. And this is a great example. So starring Sally J. Friedman as herself was published in 1977. I think... The best way to start off today is to share that this is actually Judy Bloom's most autobiographical novel. I will link this in the show notes, but I found a video of Judy Bloom talking about this in 2014 at the Miami Book Fair, and she was promoting something else But the moderator asked her specifically about starring Sally J. Friedman as herself, because I guess it's like common knowledge that this is her most autobiographical book. Oh. And it was really cool to hear her talk about it firsthand because she writes about the autobiographical elements in the note to readers at the end of the book, but it was just neat to hear her speak about it.
1: I love that. I I didn't see the note at the end of this book that I have.
0: Oh, maybe it's a different edition.
1: Yeah, there is no note in this one, but I I love that. I'm going to I'm going to watch the watch the interview because that's so fascinating. I love hearing connections like that.
0: I know. Well, I'll read this part from that letter that she wrote to readers. She wrote, "Starring Sally J. Friedman as herself is my most autobiographical novel. When I was ten, I was a lot like Sally: curious, imaginative, a worrier." I was always making up stories in my head. In my stories, which I never wrote down or shared, I was brave and strong. I led a life of drama, adventure, and fame. I think the character of Sally explains how and why I became a writer, which is like huge.
1: Oh, I love that so much. I can totally see it now that you're now that you read that. Yeah, I can imagine this being so true to life. It feels so true to life. I mean that's one of the things I loved about it so much.
0: Yeah, cuz she gets to so many details. I think that's why it felt so real. And and in the video she speaks a little bit more about like the specificities of the parallel. So like Sally, Judy and her family spent 2 years away from their home in New Jersey. They went to Miami Beach. And I didn't know about this little nugget of history, but I guess in the 40s and maybe after that, like families who had children who had suffered and survived illnesses, were often encouraged to move south. And she she says in this video that in the years that she spent in Miami Beach, it was sort of this haven of moms and grandmothers and kids and dads that would just kind of like fly in for the occasional weekend because they were still back in their town or city of origin working. And then they would just visit their family whenever they could get there. And, that, and that's what we see in the Friedman family.
1: Wow, yeah, that's fascinating. Now yeah, the, whole, the whole premise was fascinating. Yeah. And and Judy
0: does say that those two years were the most influential of her entire childhood. So it's no wonder that she decided to write about them. And I'm curious what you would say to this as a writer, because when asked about what inspired her to write this book in this video, Judy says that she I like to call her by her first name. Judy, <laughs> Judy says that many years ago when she first started sort of making a name for herself in kid lit. A teacher wrote her a letter, snail mail, and asked her if she had any suggestions for an upcoming unit that she was working on about creative people in history and how they sort of became the creatives that they went on to become. So she was asking if Judy Bloom had anything to say about like what kind of kid she'd been because she wanted to be able to share that with her students. And that inspired Judy Bloom to think back on her Sally tendencies to come up with stories. And that's where this book came from.
1: Oh, I love that. Yeah, that totally makes me think of a connection I had similarly, where I was I was asked to judge a contest. It was um, the letters and literature contest. That's actually nationwide, and they had the finalists, and I I just contributed in a small way to the to who the final winner was. But I, I spoke at the award ceremony at the DC Public Library, and these kids had all written letters to the authors who had you know inspired them in some way, past or present, so living or dead authors. And so when I was thinking about you know my remarks I was wondering who who would I write to and what book really impacted me and I thought of little women which was huge to me. But one of the reasons I realized that that book spoke to me so much was because, you know, Joe March being a writer and 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 I didn't even think about it until that moment, like how many parallels I found with her experience and mine. Like I used to write a family newspaper when I was a kid and they had the Pickwick Papers and Little Women. I don't know if I got that idea from the book. It very well is possible that I did. And, you know, I wrote for my school newspaper and there was just all these parallels that that I found. and And that ultimately made me think about how fun it would be to write a story inspired by my little women and led to me writing more to the story. But it sort of came from, you know, a, one this gets a librarian's invitation. But the whole idea of just going back and reexamining not only your own influences and what pushed you to become a writer or think of yourself as as a writer.
0: Thank you for sharing that. You and I have a lot in common um, <laughs> <kind of> <laughs> yeah. to not to make it about me. But I, I love that you share that with Judy and that you share so much with Joe March and that that was part of the inspiration for more to the story. Let's talk more about Sally and the world that she lives in. At the beginning of the book, it's 1945, although we jump to 1947 pretty quickly. She lives in New Jersey with her brother and her parents and her grandma, who she calls Ma Fanny, and her family's Jewish. And so, of course, at this time in history, as World War II is coming to an end... She's experiencing the war and its aftermath in a very specific way. And I did find a quote from one blog post that I thought was really interesting and I wanted to share it to kind of open up a conversation about the way this book contributes to like a a broader historical picture of life in 1947. This article was in tablet and it was published in 2012. And I'll make sure to include a link to it in the show notes. But it says the Holocaust was a defining experience for the Jews, but not for every individual Jew. Sally's experience and Bloom's too, given that it was a blueprint for Sally's, is larger than the Holocaust. And that is a gift for readers who object to the premise that the Holocaust is sacred and out of bounds for inclusion in creative pursuits that don't affirm its holy and central status. That is for readers like me. And that quote got me thinking about like historical fiction in general, and the way creators tell stories told in difficult times. And I I do think like, I write contemporary fiction, but The notion of writing something set in a very difficult time. I mean, it's all difficult times now, but I don't know. I guess that quote just got me thinking about how like one of Judy Blume's best things is that when she writes about a difficult subject, she never makes that the only thing that a kid is experiencing. And in other books, maybe the difficult thing is puberty or a first relationship. But in this book, one of the difficult things is like, the most difficult thing that's happened in history and Sally's family has been affected by that firsthand she's lost family members in concentration camps and there are threads of that through every page of the book really but Sally also has a really full life and she's a normal kid doing other things so i i just love to get your thoughts on that
1: i think it's amazing that she touches on such you know what would be such a heavy topic and you know and could very well be really heavy and the mention of of Hitler and and then at one point the kids one kid tells her that she has to spit when she says the word Hitler, which is you know you totally can imagine kids talking like that, but this being such a you know terrifying, overwhelming, and in Sally's case personal experience. But what's what's so fascinating is what, to what you alluded to is that you know she is just going on living her life, trying to process these events and and deal with them and react to them, but it, it keeps coming up in in different ways, and small ways, but. It's not all-consuming, and I feel like, you know, if, if we were going to categorize this book, it would be very much a coming-of-age story. I think it not an issue book. You know, it's not a book dealing with the Holocaust or the aftermath of, of World War II or or Hitler and the atrocities of, that he allowed to happen and, and all of those things, where, as I feel like, if this book was maybe written today, it would, it would feel very different, and I think that's what's really special about this, and it was really, for me, eye-opening to see how she did sort of weave this very serious theme in a very lighthearted way where, you know, can even make you laugh. And I almost felt like, like guilty, like, Oh my gosh, I just laughed out loud at something that's horrible, but the way she, she writes it, it it invites that reaction. So, you know, just the childish manner in which, you know, Sally's sort of processing it is, it's humorous, even, even though it is so, so painful. Yeah, it actually makes me think
0: a little bit about Little Women and Little Women is my favorite classic. I read it once a year. So, um Yay. I think like I said we have some things in common, not that it's without its issues because it certainly isn't, but I think that in the same way that in Little Women the March family like is of course dealing with the effects of the Civil War and the years after, like they also have to continue to live their lives and and we sort of see the years after the Civil War through a very specific set of lenses and and largely, like, I think the issues with little women often are that, like, it's a very, like, white set of lenses. But I think that, like, in that you see, like, kind of The petulant concerns and like the spoiled concerns and the real concerns, like the full range of human emotion that comes after tragedy. Um, And I love that Louisa May Alcott like wasn't afraid to show some of those arguably like superficial frustrations. And I think there's a similar pattern in starring Sally J. Friedman as herself because like there are things about the aftermath of war that are just like kind of inconvenient for Sally. Like she's annoyed by some of the things that she has to deal with. And at the same time, she is aware of like the most serious consequences because she has a cousin and a great aunt who both were killed. So like, I think we as humans and and as creators, we sometimes have a tendency to be like, it, it can't be both. Like in order to fully appreciate the gravity of a situation or the atrocity of a situation, you can't also be experiencing the day-to-day details of it. Mm -hmm. But that's just like not really the way that humans are wired. And I think if the last two years have taught us anything, like that's kind of what we've had to figure out. Like there are massive global issues happening. And yet like my dog is annoying me. And like, Mm -hmm. it's okay for me to experience both of those things
1: right sure and as a kid of course too yeah it's the level that you can even grasp what's happening you know like clearly sally has a sense of of what's happened and you know but clearly she's confused too about certain things or the fact that she can entertain like wild possibilities and you know so her her imagination gets the best of her but she is clearly you know only able to get things to a point. And it's very black and white in some cases, you know, things being fair or unfair or, you know, just right or wrong. And, and that's sort of where it ends. And then she's still a kid who's who's playing and, you know, thinking about this boy in her class and trying to figure out friends. And I love that that she's still very much just finding her way. And and yet there's these big things happening both in her family and in the world around her.
0: There's just so much to it. I actually think this might be the longest Of the Judy Bloom books that we've read for the podcast, I was shocked when I picked it up about how thick of a book it is. And I think it's because, like, we get a little bit of her life at school. We find out what's going on with her family. She's in New Jersey, she's in Miami Beach. We know what's going on with the war. Like, we really get a glimpse of every part of Sally's life. And I wonder if that's because Judy Bloom was writing about herself and like it's harder to edit and to like kill your darlings when you're writing about your own experiences. So I think while we are talking about the way that Sally has processed the war, I wanted to touch on a few um, moments there that we have in this book. So I would say one that was like it's I think cringy is the best word I can use to describe it. But Sally like loves to play pretend like she in the friend group is the one who is in charge of what games they're playing. Her best friend, Christine, back in New Jersey, says to her, like, why do you always get to make up the story? Which I loved because I think that probably was a little bit how I was when I was a kid. And Sally like casts the friends and decides who is going to play what part. And so, of course, they play house like they play all of these very sort of predictable games. And then Sally suggests that they play concentration camp. And it feels really icky to even say that in the context of what generally feels like a really kind of like bubbly, positive children's book, because when you're reading it, it smacks you in the face a little bit because Sally is like goofy and dramatic and funny and has these amazingly accurate observations about the world. And just to realize that like to her, that feels normal. Like, oh, we could put on a play about a concentration camp in the same way that we might put on a play about I don't know, something happening at school. And uh, it's disturbing, Mm -hmm. but not, of course, in a way that makes me judge Sally or makes me judge the author. It's just disturbing in the way that it reflects what happens in our world.
1: Yeah. And I feel like that's something that, you know, I I was shocked at too, a few times where some of the things that are included in the book that are graphic or are, you know, shocking in, in some way or another, but but what I appreciated about it was that even though there is this overwhelming innocence to Sally in the book, you know that that really comes through—that she's this girl who's is, is has been so much sheltered and and lives in her imagination in some ways and is is grappling with these issues, but it's just part of her method or her way of of dealing, like you know whether it's dreaming up you know, these, these plays in her head or these, these, you know, letters that she writes, whatever it is, that's, it's her way of processing. And, and like you said, it's not, it's not a judgment against either of them. It's just, that's what it is. And I feel like today we may be shy away from those things. You know, we, we question, you know, what's appropriate to include, or I feel like we're on the one hand pushing kids to be activists or, you know, when we write books, they they very much have to do something about the issue at hand or, you know, take a step to solve a problem and sort of be this, these agents of change or their own agents in their books. And I feel like in this case, you know, it, it's really not that. I, I love the fact that it's Sally sort of processing the world around her as she's experiencing it. And she's not this great leader or this great, you know, change maker or anything. She just has to kind of cope. And in that come these these difficult things that, I don't know, I wonder even even as we, we've force kids to confront big world issues nowadays, I do feel like we, we also shelter them from from painful moments and anything that could be traumatic, if that makes sense. So I can't see those specific things making their way or making the cut into a book being published today. Yet in reading them I was I was like, wow, like it, it works, you know, and I feel like it's it's necessary and it is what kids think about, they can't help it. But I feel like we might shy away from it in a way that that we, we try to protect them, even as we encourage them to learn and think.
0: Oh, that's so interesting. It makes me think that like, the pressure and the expectation that we have on younger people today, also is about like expecting that they can process and act on things in an adult way, rather than expecting that they are informed and then process it in a way that's kind of like appropriate and Quote, normal for them. Like Sally is processing what's happening in her world in a way that, like, as disturbing as it is, also makes sense to me as a kid who grew up in the 90s, like without social media and the internet and streaming all the time. I don't know how access to all of these things affects the way kids process world events now because I don't have a child living in my home. But I do think that growing up in a period when those things weren't available to me, like you really had no choice in terms of processing, but to like play through it in a way or to like act it out. And that's, that's like a kid's response. And so even though it's very shocking and cringy and there was no part of me that enjoyed reading it and it, it's just like so upsetting and distressing that kids in any age, in any country, in any place, in any time should like have to be aware of these things going on. I was like, this feels like what a 10 year old would do. And and maybe now it's like, oh no, if you're 10 and you understand what's going in the world, you also need to have some like meaningful social media platform that's affecting change in a tangible way. And like those things are great. But maybe we've lost a little bit of like the authenticity of how kids would naturally react to this kind of information.
1: And I think you touched on something really important too, which is the the way she would have been getting information at that time time. I mean, she would either have to read a newspaper herself or have somebody tell her You know what was happening, or listen to the radio and hear the news, and you know it really wasn't geared towards her. Whereas you know kids today have endless sources of information. I think my kids get a lot of theirs off of social media, and even if they don't want it, it's there, even in a silly TikTok. You know, there's some commentary on what's going on in the world. So I feel like it's not as separate, perhaps, as it was for Sally, um, where you know what was happening in the world was maybe a little more removed from what was happening in her life or maybe seemed that way, except for when, when the worlds collide or when she thinks they're colliding. Yeah. Well, while we're talking about
0: technology or lack thereof, I just have to take a moment for the phones in this book, because in this apartment (laughs) building where Sally is living in Miami beach with her family, they're on this like joint phone system that I guess I, I didn't know that this was a thing. I must've used this in history class, But because they're living in a big building, and it makes sense. Like sometimes, like I just don't always understand. Like it sounds so dumb. Like how do phones work? It makes sense (laughs) to me that in a singular apartment building, that there should be only one phone line, and that's what we see in this book. And each family who is on this shared phone line has a different ringtone. Like Mm -hmm. there's, you know, a few short rings, or two long rings, and one short ring, and so. Sally is instructed to only answer the phone when her family's ringtone comes through. And obviously she doesn't because she's Sally <laughs> and so like she has to get all the news about what's going on with her neighbors, but I think that this little like factoid about technology just kind of blew my mind. Like of course this would have been a stop along the way of getting us from no phones to everybody having a phone in their pocket. Like that makes logical sense. But it was really interesting to see how it was depicted in this practical way in the book.
1: Yeah. And even the whole notion, yeah, for me, it was, you know, before my time too, of course, but I remember my parents like having to book a call through an operator when they wanted to make a long distance call back to Pakistan. They would actually pick up the phone and say they wanted to make a call and and then they would have to wait for the operator to call them back and connect them. And I was like, and it sort of reminded me of this in a way. And then also the whole idea of being able to eavesdrop on other people's calls like back in my in my childhood we could pick up the phone and if someone else was having a conversation in the same house of course or but we could eavesdrop and that whole notion is is gone now right like conversations are so much more private even in a time when we have less privacy probably overall we have this you know illusion of privacy where no one no one sitting you know in a room near us is is eavesdropping on both both sides of a conversation at least whereas that was something that could very easily happen when you know, and in this time and also when I was little. So it was fun to see these throwback references. And and even the way Sally's growing up, some of the games and just the absence of technology was just so refreshing. And, you know, I I felt much more connected to this era in terms of my childhood, even though it was 30 years before mine, than i probably do with the way kids are growing up today.
0: Mm-hmm. And also, just the way that they are communicating with each other. Like, I am old enough to have had a lot of pen pals. Like, pen pals were a very real thing when I was growing up. And we get a lot of letters throughout this book that. Sally is writing to her friends back home in Miami and also to her dad. I think just like we sort of take for granted now how easy it is to get in touch with someone. Mm -hmm. And the fact that they had to like wait around to have this shared phone line installed after they moved to Miami. And that until then, like they had to wait around in the lobby if they wanted to get a phone call with her dad back in New Jersey. Like Now, I mean, I'm antsy if I don't get a call back about getting my new cable line installed in two days. And she was waiting around really until the phone company told her that they were ready to help them out. So whenever I read a book geared toward kids from this time period, I'm just reminded of everything that I take for granted um, in a lot of ways, but specifically, like and specific to this conversation, just to To live away from a member of your nuclear family and to not really be able to talk to them when you need to, mm-hmm. it's such a challenge. Now we just like quickly send a text message
1: right, right. And especially in Sada's case, where she's so worried that her dad's okay, yeah, and and to not be able to know that or not be able to see him or not have him reassure her, you can see how how important that is,
0: yeah. So you mentioned a few minutes ago this notion of Sally's worlds colliding, and I think that there's no better representation of that than when she decides, without a lot of evidence to back it up, but she decides that her neighbor in Miami, Mr. Zadovsky, is actually Hitler, because of course he is. Right. right. Naturally.
1: Where else would he go? <laughs>
0: Right. Like, where else would he go? So she just decides that he looks like him. And I think the thing that I liked best about this subplot was, like, not only did she decide that Mr. Zadovsky looks like Hitler, but she also puts together this whole story about, like, oh, he retired to Miami. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know why that part of it really got me. It, like, it was funny. Like,
1: yeah.
0: Hitler is, he's tired. He's going to retire. And he needs to be by a beach. Like, just this whole <laughs> idea that that makes perfect sense to her. And that right. this is where he's going to go. He's going to chill in a building that seems to be populated mostly by Jewish people. Right, right. And he's just going to, like, hang out there.
1: And offer candy to kids, right? And
0: offer candy to kids. I just thought it was so funny. And because I have an annoying habit probably of like, I'm the person who, whenever we're watching a movie or a TV show, anybody who's on the screen I identify a doppelganger for them in my real life. Mm-hmm. And so my husband's like, okay, great. Like, I know you think everybody looks like somebody else. So that part of it, I, I totally get with Sally because yeah. I love to like find your lookalike. And I think it's sort of, I don't even realize I'm doing it. It's just like a natural tendency of mine. So that part I get. But then the fact that she's like, ah, yes. And he's retiring here. It was <laughs> so funny.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it's funny because you can, you can totally see, you know, for someone like her, the thought, the, the process, it was so logical, right? Like, here's this guy who's threatening, obviously, stranger danger. Like, why is he offering candy? Like, why are these kids, like, trusting this person who yeah. is completely new to her? So she's, you know, her guard is up. And then all of a sudden, because of the world events around her, and of course, the trauma of knowing everything that happened with her family, like, that she leaps to this, you know, conclusion that it's him, and then proceeds to write these really threatening letters to him, which is so funny. <laughs> but the best part is that she doesn't send them, right? she collects these letters that she's writing that are just so so funny and yeah it's it's so absurd but yet so believable like the whole entire thing that's what i love so much about this
0: yeah absurd is the word for it especially because like all of her friends are telling her that she's wrong. Like her friends are like, no, Mr. Zadovsky is not Hitler. He gives us candy. We (laughs) like him. Like, you know, she's the new girl and has no idea what's going on. And she's like, no, I'm right. Like, I'm sorry that you don't get it. I am here and you are lucky that I'm here because I am cracking this case. And it almost feels like she, I mean, she's so desperate to fix things. Like she wants to be the hero in every story. And we see that in these tales that she tells to herself in her head. And I think we can talk more about those in a minute, but sort of in a day-to-day way, like she decides that if she can see him, if she has access to Hitler on a day-to-day basis, then she can be the one to like bring him to justice and get revenge because he has, he has caused so much harm to her family and to the people that she cares about. I loved it. She was so funny. I just loved picturing this old man walking around in like a Hawaiian shirt and she is like, no, I'm sorry. He's, he's the world's most evil dictator. That's it. That's just the truth.
1: Right. And thinking to herself, like I, you, you don't fool me, right? I know who you right. are and you fooled these other people, but not me. Right.
0: You can't pull one over on me. Um, I pulled out a couple of lines from these grand stories that Sally tells herself herself. There are a lot of them. So I, I just grabbed a couple of my favorites And I pulled these out without context, but I don't think you need them. I think, listeners, you'll get a sense of just the way Sally likes to picture herself. And a a lot of the stories that she tells herself are about the Holocaust and how she wants to, like, save her people from Hitler. When they get home, Sally is a hero. There is a big parade in her honor on Broad Street, and everyone cheers. The people watching from the windows in the office buildings throw confetti the way Sally did when Admiral Halsey came home at the end of the war. Oh, this one's really good. She has secret information from the head of the East Coast Underground, but she refuses to tell. Hitler can't send her to a concentration camp because he is just building one in Bayonne and it won't be ready for a month. Bayonne? Of all places,
1: Bayonne, New Jersey. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Uh, The drama. Okay, here's another one. This one's from earlier in the book. The chief of police is so impressed that he makes Sally his number one detective, specializing in strange cases. A Hollywood producer decides to make a movie of Sally's story, but he can't find the right 10-year-old girl to play the lead. He decides he must have Sally herself, and that is how Sally gets to be not only a famous detective, but also a movie star.
1: The best of both worlds, right?
0: I mean, a girl can do it all. She yeah. really can. Um, here's one more. Sally and Peter fly off to Hollywood with Esther Williams, and they have to practice kissing three times a week. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is how kids, I think, imagine an adult life to be. Like, it's like, oh, well, if you're an adult and you um are old enough to have a relationship obviously you're old enough to like also be a movie star and practice kissing a boy three times a week and also like if you're old enough to have a job you're also old enough to like be a hero in whatever field you work like it's so true to the way that any 10-year-old would see the world and that really is what Judy Bloom is so good at
1: yeah, absolutely, and and some of the other observations, like just even, I mean, some of them are, seem a little obviously dated in today's world, but this was set in the in the 40s. But you know, the whole idea of you know a Latin lover and her deciding that she wants a Latin lover. I mean, <laughs> and there was just so much, and I I was thinking about that, you know, in terms of what it was like to read this as an adult and to find these musings so funny, right? And to actually laugh out loud several times while I was reading this versus what it would be like for a kid today to read this book. And would they be like, oh yeah, of course, you know, <laughs> about all of these things. You know, I don't know if they wouldn't even laugh. You know, and what and I wonder, I was like, I would love to ask Judy Bloom. like, did you mean to be funny? You know, like, I, I think you were meaning to be funny for, but who are you being funny for? Was it for the adult reader or do you think the kid, yeah, I'm just dying to know. If, I need a kid to read this and tell me if they, they laughed at the same parts I did.
0: Yeah, listeners, if you have any kids in your life who have read this book more recently, please let us know what they thought of it. Because I agree, like, a lot of the jokes I think would have made sense to me when I was a kid just because certain phrases were still like kind of out there and in the zeitgeist. But I think a lot of those things have kind of fallen by the wayside. And so I don't know if kids would get it. We need to talk about Peter Hornstein and his Latin lover status or not and the (laughs) kissing. So I have, I have an issue with Peter Hornstein Mm. and I need to vocalize it. I think that Peter Hornstein is to blame for a lot of problems that a lot of women have. Yeah. And I, I remember around 2016 when the Me Too movement picked up steam and we all were kind of getting reeducated, I think, in our vocabulary about talking about certain experiences. And I am talking about, I, I understand, like a specific experience of cis, in many cases, straight women. But I I remember at that time, there being all of this discourse about the problematic nature of a story that many of us were raised on, which is, if a boy is making fun of you or being mean to you, it means that he likes you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that is something that I remember adults in my life telling me, and it was only with the best of intentions. They weren't trying to screw me up forever. <laughs> um, yeah. But that is also on the page in this very book, because Sally is really annoyed that a boy sitting behind her in class named Peter Hornstein is dipping her braids in his wells of ink against the 40s and she can't figure out why he's doing this and her friend who has an older sister explains to her that her older sister who knows everything about boys always says that a boy will only make fun of you or like play pranks on you if he has a crush on you. And so I would like to say that Peter Hornstein alone is responsible for a lot of the things that we as a culture have had to untangle over the
1: last couple of years. Yeah. I, yeah, I totally flagged that too. When I was reading, I was like, yikes, you know? <laughs> but, you know, again, like so true to what what we were taught. And obviously, you know, and honestly, I, I still hear people say it now. Just recently, I heard somebody saying that to someone like, oh, probably likes you. I was like, no, 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 no. (laughs) But I think it is, you know, people our age were taught that. And it's, it's hard if you haven't, you know, wrestled with those notions and re-educated yourself to not somehow perpetuate it. So I'm glad, I'm so glad we're we're not allowing this now, but clearly, yeah, it was, it was something that jumped out at me right away.
0: Yeah. And I don't have the kids, but I would imagine that even knowing what I know in 2022, that if my child of any gender was coming home every day and saying that they were being teased, like I would be looking for any explanation for them. And so at a certain point, like I can see how that might be a suggestion that you would throw out. But of course this being a mainstream explanation for bullying or teasing perpetuates cycles in which little girls specifically are kind of like, I think, taught to excuse these bad behaviors. And in which younger boys in a lot of cases are taught that like, this is how you express kindness is by being mean, which just is objectively
1: yeah. not
0: problematic. It's problematic. <laughs> so Peter Hornstein... I'm on to you. I don't appreciate that your little inkwell game made its way into my childhood, but I'm glad that we're all moving past it intellectually. Um, Peter Hornstein is Sally's first kiss. I like that she initiated the kiss. I thought mm. that was cool. Um, I love that she and her friend like staked out a wedding. They're like, oh, we can go. It's fine. We'll just wait outside <laughs> the wedding. We know his, his older brother's getting married. We weren't invited, but we'll just wait. And uh, she just is like, no, we're gonna. I'm going to kiss you. That's it.
1: Yeah, that was that was a better way for that to happen, for sure. Yeah. And 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 interestingly, when, you know, when she is being tormented by him, it's interesting that she doesn't go to an adult. You know, she doesn't tell the teacher. Right? I don't think she tells the teacher.
0: I don't think she does either. I feel like usually when that dynamic is portrayed, it's like a parent or a teacher using that explanation. But in this case, it's her friend.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: That is interesting. Speaking of adults, let's talk a little bit more about Sally's family um, because there's a lot going on. I have a lot of thoughts about the mom, but I think I'm gonna start with the dad because I loved their relationship. Sally is definitely in a place where she's frustrated with her mom. She's annoyed with most things that her mom says and does. And so she's aligning herself with her dad. It's kind of one of those situations where like she will go to her dad anytime something bad is happening and tell him not like, oh, this is mom's fault. Like mom is ruining everything. And because her dad's still in New Jersey, we get a lot of that in these letters that she's writing to her dad. She's very anxious about his health and safety. She knows that he is flying on a plane to see them. Of course, planes were still quite a novelty at this point. Um, And Judy Bloom in that interview at the Miami Book Fair talks about how this was a very real part of her experience. Like she spent a lot of time worrying about her dad. He was a dentist like the dad in this book, like the dad in this book, both of her dad's brothers passed away at the age of 42. And so Judy Bloom grew up very afraid that her dad would also die when he was 42. And that's a very real anxiety that Sally is struggling with. And I thought that all of that was really beautifully done. One thing that was tripping me up, this idea, and it's, it's such like a 2022 thing of me probably to be stuck on. And, and I'm curious if you had this reaction, this thing that they call the treatment. Mm -hmm. So they do this very sweet thing where they're like very physically affectionate with each other. And I love that. Like, I think that we need to be promoting those kinds of like safe, consensual physical reactions among families. But it's this really weird thing where like they keep referring to it as like a treatment. Like mm-hmm. she's like, he's like, oh, I can't wait to come to. And I'm saying it in a way that makes it sound worse than it is. But I can't help it because this is how I read it. He writes in his letters like, can't wait to come to Miami to like get my treatment. And she's like, I can't wait to give you a treatment. And I'm stuck on it in a way that is making it so much less wholesome than it's meant to be. But in 2022, I like couldn't unsee it. It was hard for me.
1: I know. Yeah. And it is. It Yeah. And I think it's one of those things where with all the information we have now and a different lens with which we view things like it, I I had, I had a moment too, where I was like, I wouldn't have written this like this, you know, like I I even if you had a special hug or a special, whatever it was. um, Yeah. I, I would have phrased it much less. Overtly or in, insistently or whatever the word is. So I feel like, like you're saying, like the the interaction is is fine. It's it's sweet. It's harmless. But it's it's the sort of the way it's worded, and I think that is just. A, I think it's indicative of how we're now seeing it. I'm sure, like even 20 years ago, might not have seemed as weird, but definitely now. Yeah, that's a good point. It it did it did raise a flag for me too. That the sound just sounds inappropriate.
0: Yeah, I mean the language I think was very reminiscent of interviews that I've heard, quite frankly, with victims of Larry Nassar and USA Gymnastics, and I think that's what was hitting me. And because it's Judy Bloom, and she is so brave about exploring big, scary subjects for kids, and I didn't remember enough about this book to know what was coming. I. I was a little concerned that I was going to have to fall out of love very quickly with this dad because I did really like him as a character Mm -hmm. and it it didn't go there. And I'm so Mm -hmm. glad it didn't go there, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but I, I just think it's, it speaks to the power of language and the evolution of language and also just our changing awareness of things. One of the letters from her dad that I really did love that I wanted to share comes to her after she is asking him questions about segregation, because in Miami and especially on on the family's journey from New Jersey to Miami she's noticing some differences and i think that like she probably grew up in somewhat of a bubble in New Jersey and she's not used to seeing people of color being treated differently than anyone else so when they're on the train she sees that a black family has to move to another car And then when they are getting settled in Miami, she is confronted for the first time with segregated water fountains. And so she asks her dad about this. And in his letter back to her, he writes, in your last letter, you raised some questions that are very hard to answer. I have always believed that people have more similarities than differences, regardless of the color of their skin. While the South continues to practice outright segregation, the North is not much better. We just don't admit we do it. For instance, how many Negro children were in your school in New Jersey? I loved the honesty of this
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and
0: I loved that he is not coming in to fix everything or to offer solutions or to suggest that there's not a problem or that he lives in a place that is without its issues. And I love that he basically came to her. And I think there was another letter where he's like, I I can't explain why this happens to you. Like I don't Mm -hmm. know. And I Mm -hmm. think imperfect adults characters in kids books are so important
1: yeah and and just the presence of i know i tend to enjoy books that do include families and parent figures and i know i wasn't sure even when i started writing if that was fallen out of favor now or you know if you watch you know disney or nickelodeon it's like there's no parents <laughs> like let's have these kids just sort of raise themselves yeah um in groups or whatever it is but i love i loved reading about families the books i really like Little Women, Judy Bloom books, Beverly Cleary books, that the 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 parents were so central and and just or adult figures of some kind, and I feel like this was it, to me it was a huge strength of this book um, to see these flawed parents, including the mom who's clearly dealing with you know anxiety or maybe some kind of depression even you know and it it it's undiagnosed in the book. We don't know exactly what it is, but it's there, and again something that that Sally has to deal with in a very real way. Um, and maybe you even see that perhaps her tendency to worry is something learned or, or something that carries on from her mom's you know, nervousness and so on. And that it is something that her father is contending with both with her trying to rein her in (laughs) and her active imagination, but also of course it's affecting his relationship with his wife. So, you know, we're seeing all this as readers in a very, again, like that's what I think is so masterful about this book is that she's introducing these really serious themes again, like around mental health and how you, confront your own fears and, and work through them. But it's so, it's so gentle, I guess, and its approach and so thoughtful and gradual that it doesn't feel like you're being taught a lesson or being introduced to some serious issue.
0: Yeah. Because at first it just seems like the mom has high standards. Mm-hmm. Like at first I was like, oh, you know, she maybe prefers Sally's brother Douglas and Sally can't do anything right. And She's hard on Sally for that reason. Like she's just pushing Sally. And then these other factors creep in, these other behaviors creep in. And we start to see that she has a lot of anxieties about germs, about safety in general. Um, And I'm sure there were even bigger worries that we don't see on the page because there are such scary things happening in the world in which Sally and her family live. And then you throw in... A child, Douglas, who was very ill. Uh, We haven't talked about this yet, but the reason that they're in Miami is because he got super sick back home in New Jersey. So now she's afraid of that. Like this woman who was already anxious and worried, who's already afraid that her family just for being their faith, like is at a greater risk for being harmed. She's already lost family members to the circumstances and atrocities of the world. Now she has a son who is vulnerable to illness. She's away from her husband when her husband is around. She's not really that into like the people he wants to hang out with. I'm sure there are financial stresses like it's just a lot. And about halfway through the book, I was like, oh, she has crippling anxiety. And there is one point, I think, where I forget who it was. But somebody says that Sally's mom like never leaves the house, which made me so sad because she's far away from her home. She's far away from her husband. She's doing everything that she knows how to do to be a good mom. And yet she's so afraid to even leave the apartment. And I think to see how that has impacted Sally is interesting. Like one of the last scenes of the book is where she's talking to her dad pretty openly about her worries. Mm -hmm. And her dad explains that mom does worry a lot. It's because she loves all of us so much, but I don't want you Mm -hmm. to, to have that burden. And like I said, I don't have kids, but that feels to me like something that's very true of, of conversations between parents and kids. Like, I love this about somebody else. It's well-intentioned, but we need to break the cycle.
1: Right. And it's not this, you know, build up climate, you know, climatic moment where they have this, you know, moment of, clarity and resolution it's just sort of woven into the story just a sweet moment and and it, you need it as a reader I think you need you need to feel reassured as she does that dad's okay and that he's sort of aware of what's happening and that someone sort of seems like they have a, a handle on the whole situation because otherwise it does kind of feel like a bit unnerving you know know, like there's all these moving parts and with mom's anxieties it would be hard you can see how sally might internalize those or absorb those so it is it is comforting to have dad sort of step up and say you know i see you and everything's okay i'm okay but it again it was it was just so nicely done and that it's not okay so this huge this huge issue that has to be resolved um or this big moment where it's more than a passing conversation if that makes sense
0: I have one more question for you before we start to wind down this conversation. And it's about death because there is a lot of death in this book. And I think just like you were saying that some of these other kind of issues don't necessarily hit readers at a single climactic moment, like death doesn't really either. It's sort of sprinkled throughout. We're aware of all of the death that's happening overseas. We're aware that sally has family members that have been killed by hitler we see the loss of one of her friend's cats which is really heartbreaking we know about her family members on her dad's side who have died young and now she's afraid that her dad's going to die and there's conversation about what happens after death as somebody who writes for kids Hannah, i'm curious how you feel all of that played out on the page do you think that I guess I just I I I think it's hard to know how to approach death for anybody um, at any age, but it's especially scary for kids. And a lot of Sally's reactions resonated with me, like that moment where she is just laying in bed thinking about death for the first time. I guess I just love your thoughts on on how Judy Bloom approached this.
1: Again, I, I I thought it was brilliant. And for me, it was it was really refreshing to see this. And I, you know, I I do see there's death in, in middle grade fiction today, but it isn't probably as frequent as we're seeing here. It isn't mixed in with these light moments, you know, like her friend who she's visiting, her new friend in Miami, who's like, oh yeah, my dad, he's dead. Like, do you want to see his tags? Like he died in the war. And it was just so, so matter of fact. So that was a little shocking to see, but I feel like to what you were saying, that is probably the way kids are with, with each other. You know, and I remember as a, as a kid babysitting a child who lost a younger sister. And it was this tragedy that had befallen our neighborhood and this, this young baby had passed away. And I remember seeing this the, the older sibling just being like, oh, yeah, that belonged to my sister. She's dead. You know, and she was just so matter of fact about it. And I was holding back tears, but she was just like, it is what it is. And And so that to me felt really real. I do feel like I felt like it was appropriately handled considering the time that this book was written, you know, the things that were going on in the world. I felt like to avoid that might have been almost unnatural. So I I appreciated that we saw it in different facets and that it was something that she worried about. Because I do know that developmentally there is this age where kids really start to understand death and fear it so much so that I remember that time where I felt so anxious that my parents would like when they would leave the house or we'd be home without them. I'd be so worried about them coming home. So I could very much relate to Sally's fear around her dad and just trying to be like, okay, what, what is this? <laughs> Why does this happen? And i um, trying to make sense of it all.
0: Yeah. I think it's like everything else that Judy Bloom does. It's very frank and direct and to the point. And that's how kids process things. I'm curious how you would describe the overall experience of reading this book as an adult. I know you didn't read it when you were a kid, so we can't compare it to a long ago reading experience, but you have read other books by Judy Bloom, And so I guess I'd just love to hear your thoughts. Was this what you expected? Was it different? Did you enjoy it? Do you think it holds up?
1: It was very different than what I expected. I really didn't expect it to touch on as many of the, the themes that it did. I'm so glad to have read it. I'm really grateful that, you know, you offered this as, as an option because I honestly feel like I learned so much from having read this in terms of just craft and voice. Like she's she's just masterful and it really does make me want to go back and read all the other Judy Blume books that I both have and haven't read before because, you know, there's a reason why her books were as as beloved as they've been over so many years. And it is nice to, to go back and just read something that, was written for the kids of my generation in the sense like I was I was born in seventy three so you know she wrote this when I was around and and just to know even though it's historical like just the tone of the book for for better or worse for like you know obviously some of the things in there maybe we we wouldn't include today for for good reason but just some of the the ways that stories were told and and the way we process the world and and obviously we can grow and evolve and improve on that but there is obviously something to be said for for the way. I don't know, the way we grew up and, and the way we, just the snapshot look at childhood that I feel like sometimes is hard to, to get with the adult, adults writing children, you know, and I feel like she's just so good at that.
0: Yeah. Well, and I think it also always takes me back to like, oh, this was the style of book that Made me love reading because these were the books that I that were handed to me when I was a kid, so I always feel that way. But I'm so appreciative that you read this book with me. Thank you for taking the time. Other than Judy Bloom, what have you been reading lately that you would recommend to our listeners?
1: Well, I was thinking of a book I finished recently, which actually won the Sydney Taylor Book Award. So, since this is a Jewish family, um, how to find what you're not looking for, um, by Vera Hir- <laughs> Um it's a it's a beautiful book. I really enjoyed it. It's set in the '60s, um, a Jewish family where the protagonist's older sister has actually uh, decided to marry. A man, um, but it's set in the era of uh, Loving versus Virginia and like the Supreme Court decision, and so it's it's really beautifully done as well. And another historical fiction that well, I don't, I wouldn't call it his. Well, maybe it is historical fiction, but this is just a test, which is set in the '80s during the Cold War and the fears around. Well, sadly, it's not as far away from our imaginations right now, but um, just a nuclear holocaust. And it's by Madeline Rosenberg and Wendy Shang. And it's very funny, too, just in terms of and for someone who grew up in the 80s, just to the way we we process those world events, I feel like would be relevant to to readers who enjoy this book. So I really recommend those. Both of those as very different, but very good reads.
0: Great. Well, I will include links to both of those in the show notes for this episode. We actually had Vera on the podcast last year and she's fantastic. So I'm a big fan of hers. Me too. I will also, of course, Hannah, include links to all of your books. Is there anything that you have coming up or anything recent that you want to share, especially with our listeners today?
1: Oh, well, I do have a new series launching. Well, actually, by the time this comes out, it'll be, it will have just released. Um, It's, Zara's Rules series. And the first book is called Zara's Rules for Record Breaking Fun. It's an early middle grade series featuring Zara, who's the sister of uh, Zaid Salim, a character in my, another series that I wrote. And um, these books are very neighborhood and play and friendship focused. And to me, it's sort of a nod to Ramona Quimby and and the books that I loved growing up. And um, some of the things we talked about today are relevant, like um, there's sort of an absence of technology in these books, and they sort of have a throwback feel because I wrote them during the lockdown. I was thinking about all the kids outside my neighborhood and and thinking of my own childhood. And so um, I hope people enjoy, enjoy this.
0: I'm sure they will. Well, congratulations on a launch of a new series. I'm so Thank excited you. for you. And I Thank will make sure so to much. link to those books in the show notes over at www.ssrpodcast.com listen. It was so much fun talking to you today. Thank you so much.
1: Oh my goodness. Thank you for having me. This was a blast. Bye. Bye-bye. SSR
0: is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts.